right. Uh, if we can make our way back to our seat, that would be fantastic. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good people. Uh, much love to you. Uh, thrilled that we can be together. Uh, we're going to jump back in. Maybe. Uh, we are in uh, week two of our mini-series, but specifically we are in uh, the second Sunday of Advent, this season uh, leading up to Christmas season known as Advent. And so each week what we want to do is we're going to gather around uh, an Advent wreath as it's understood and have a little time where we just, uh, we dig into the scriptures, have a reading, light some candles, and then we'll um, go into our uh, further teaching. Um, but each week we want to have uh, a family participate this. So if this week, if you would, for our week two, uh, give a warm Walker Harbor welcome to uh, Team Grogel. Uh, Grogel family will be uh, leading us this morning. So thank you, Chad, Stacy, Reese, and Cody. Luke 2, verse 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We light the first candle of Advent to remember hope. As we light the second candle, it helps us to remember another unbreakable gift, the gift of love. God loved the world so much that he sent us Jesus. We thank God for this gift of love by showing love to our families, friends, and others. As you begin this new week, be thinking on and prayfully acting on ways you can show love to your family, friends, and others. Let's pray. God of love, thank you for the gift of love. Help us to share this gift with others. Help us to love unconditionally. Help us during this Advent season to practice love and action with family, friends, and others. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We have some new readers. So you just, you just signed up for a lot right there. That was fantastic. I love it. Uh, beautiful. I love this season. I love this time together. I love reflecting on um, the story as it is as we um, move into it through uh, Advent time. 
Uh, we are now in uh, a second, our second week of kind of what we have called these mini-series within the larger series of walking through the gospel according to a young Jewish man named Matthew, as we've been spending uh, over a year now walking through this gospel, this biography of Jesus' life by Matthew, and we've been looking at these sub-themes, these smaller themes within Matthew, and so the one we are calling uh, this last one is beginnings and endings. Beginnings and endings because although we are coming to the end of Matthew's gospel, we are looking at the end of Jesus' life, but we do so as we are coming to a point in the season a calendar, our year, where we look at typically the beginning of his life. So we're trying to tie those clouds together in some different ways. Um, so hopefully you'll see that. Uh, but we are now walking through the, the details of the last day of Jesus' life, moving into his death, his resurrection, and then the commissioning, what it's known as the commissioning of his students, uh, to live out their witness of who Jesus is to the ends of the earth is the language that the scriptures use. They will be sent and they will, they will be witness to who Jesus is to the ends of the earth. It's a rather massive story. But I have been contemplating why this enormous story is too often shrunk down into a religious trinket. Why is that? In fact, uh, recently I was talking with one of my favorite conversation partners, and he said to me uh, this week, he's like, I've been trying to figure out why I have been extra grumpy or quite a bit grumpy lately. He said, I've been trying to figure out, I just feel like I've been grumpy lately, and then he, he was on a, 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 contem a contemplative walk, um, and he said it kind of dawned on him, oh, I know why. Christmas is getting close. And I, and I just kind of took my head and I said, oh, interesting. And he said, and I know that's why I get, I'm, I'm, I've been getting uh, a bit grumpy. And he said, because Christmas in our society doesn't look anything like the Christ story. So I paused and I said nothing for a moment and just kind of looked at him. And then I said, say more. He said, although I don't claim the religion of Christianity, I know that the Christ story is the story. The Christ story is Christmas. So how did we shrink something so big into something so small? I looked at him and I simply said, great question, which this had me thinking about why, as we are in our story, why did Jesus' students, why can't they see the massive story that is taking place among them, that they have been walking in? Why are they missing it? Why are they so hyper-focused on what they want? And then I read a story this week in the Washington Post that for me functioned as a bit of an aha, like, 
oh, I see, this continues to happen. This explains a little bit why we maybe uh, shrink such a massive story into a small story because the temptation for each one of us is always to see things or maybe only see things through my story and my wants. So, ready? Kraft Mac and Cheese sells a three-and-a-half-minute meal, except the three-and-a-half minutes accounts just for the microwave time. It does not include other time-consuming steps like tearing off the lid, adding water, and stirring in cheese sauce. So argues a Florida woman. She might not have bothered buying the shells and cheese product had she known the truth, quote unquote, says a proposed class action lawsuit in which she is the lead plaintiff. The suit filed in U.S. District Court in Miami seeks more than $5 million in damages on behalf of this woman and other purportedly hoodwinked customers. I am not joking. If you don't get what you want exactly the second that you want it, you can sue for millions of dollars. If I don't get what I want, then I'll sue to get what I want. This ridiculous story helps me actually make more sense of why we see the story the story will be in, in the scriptures, how we see it going the direction it is because apparently the human heart can get a little distracted. And when the human heart gets distracted, maybe in the self, we'll do all sorts of crazy things like sue Kraft Mac and Cheese because how dare you not include this into the time or this. I'm not even buying it. Get out of here if I have to do that. So then, we've come to a point in our story in which we've arrived at Jesus' arrest. But before we sink into that part of the story, I want to back up a little bit and just grab the last part of last week to help lead us into this week. So the end of last week's text was Matthew 26, verse 30, and it said this, when they had sung a hymn, that is Jesus and his students, they were in uh, Jerusalem in a small home and they were having the Passover meal. When they'd finished that, they went out to the Mount of Olives and sung a hymn. And I told you last week, right, we're going to actually look at that hymn. So first, what we do is we need to situate ourselves geographically. So we're at the Mount of Olives. They have come from Jerusalem. So our first picture is um, you're facing west. So if you're standing on, we're, we're all standing on the Mount of Olives. Picture that. And we're looking west. We're looking into the Temple Mount. That's the Temple Mount. And so into Jerusalem. So the disciples or Jesus' students, and he, they, they were in somewhere in Jerusalem at some small house. They had walked this way. They're now standing on the Mount of Olives. This way you're looking that. If you were to look east, then you get this next picture. So you're on the Mount of Olives. You look back, 
and this is still my favorite picture that I took when I was there. I really love, but you have Bethany, the city of Bethany back, but you look back the other way and you're heading now towards Jericho, but you have Bethany, and so when you're on the Mount of Olives, you have this incredible view of uh, parts of Israel. It's really quite something. Then um, we have, that's where they situated. The text doesn't explicitly say which hymn they were singing, but guess what does tell us what hymn they were singing? Context, context, context teaches us to end the Passover festival, the Jewish people would sing for thousands of years, they would sing what is called the Hallel. The Hallel, which in Hebrew means praise. So if you see Hallel means praise, we get a word like hallelujah, it's praise Yahweh. That's what that would mean, hallelujah. So Hallel, they would sing that. Now the Hallel is Psalms 113 through 118. That's known as the Hallel. For thousands, so 1,500 years to the time of Jesus, they've been singing this song. They've been singing these songs, going through the Psalms. Songs of praise to the one who had rescued them from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, delivered them to the promised land, and provided for them throughout their journey. They would sing these songs. So a little bit of homework, go ahead when you go home, uh, read through Psalms 113 to 118, and you'll get this, it's beautiful. Uh, The traditional end, so the traditional end cap to, we've now finished the meal, we're wrapping up the Passover festival. How we put an end cap to the festival is we all sing together Psalm 118, which the beginning, the first verse, what we call, and the last verse are the same, and it's this, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Yeah. Exactly what we sang just a few minutes ago. As you already know, if you've been a part of this church for just more than five minutes, then you know we are really, really traditional. And that's what we have set ourselves in. When we sang this morning, we actually sang a song that had been sung for some 3,000 plus years. We were that traditional this morning. Isn't that something? We, we immersed ourselves into Now if you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, well, yeah, guitar and stuff. Do you see how tradition is more about the content rather than the container? Come on! All right, let's wrap it up. That in its, I loved it. We were that traditional and yes, beautiful. It is, they're just gorgeous words in this whole thing and that's how they would wrap it. Jesus takes this very traditional thing and they sing uh, these words of reverence. Um, It is through all then, what they're saying is through all the struggle, through all the pain, through all the provision, through all the confusion, give thanks to the divine who is the bedrock of goodness and love and that endures forever and ever and ever. And they they sang this. So soothe through song, Jesus is blanketing his students' hearts on the past, and he's also preparing their hearts for what is to come, what they are stepping into right now, and they did so through song. 
Then Matthew uh, chapter 26, verses 31 to 35. Now we move into our text today. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This is Jesus referencing uh, Zechariah chapter 13. We saw that Zechariah 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, that there's a lot going on that Jesus has been pulling from during Passover. And this is another one that he is uh, quoting or referencing. But he says, after I have risen, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other students said the same. Big, well-intentioned statements made with bravado by Peter, then upheld by the other students of this inner group of Jesus' friends, his students. They're all like, yes, we're in. And they say with bravado, we'll never disown you. And in the next few hours, every single one of them will crumble. As we're going to see in a moment. The recorded failure of Jesus' students can be and should be such a teacher for us in how following Jesus is best done when boldly lived, then humbly spoken, rather than boldly spoken and then hardly lived. Are you with me? Yeah. Because if they just teach us that, they just showed us right there. I'd like to offer a better word for the word failure. Let's call it lesson. Maybe we start naming things. Hey, instead of, remember when we failed in putting together that first business? You go, remember that lesson we learned when we tried to put that first business together? It was a $25,000 lesson. <laughs> do you remember the lesson we learned when we first were married about? Do you remember the lesson we learned when we tried to? The, the lesson might be a better word than failure because we, we don't like that word failure. And so we'll say we'll try and avoid failure rather than paying attention and going, but what are we learning? Then, Matthew 26 and 36 says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. So again, we begin with a specific location, a place called Gethsemane. So our first picture, um, to get ourselves situated, I don't know about you, but I take my pictures and I draw on them. Uh, so I did that for us. Say we're standing, now again, say we are in Jerusalem and we're looking at the Mount of Olives. Now technically, I circled this, but this whole thing is the Mount of Olives. That is where uh, we, we just were if you will. So we're in that location of the Mount of Olives, and uh, my Israel friends, that's where we were. 
So we were there. Then there are two traditional locations for the Garden of Gethsemane. So I circled the two traditional ones. So we would make this walk. And oh, by the way, we did the path that Jesus would have walked to move down from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's the journey we would take. A little different today than it would have been back then. The road is really narrow, similar to the ancient world. The difference is we had to walk tight to the wall and listen to, we're trying to be con contemplative as you walk this walk, but you also have to listen to the people in front of you yell out, car, because it's a really narrow road and cars will come and you had to go, otherwise, cuckoo would be the sound you would hear. So, um, so we're listening to that, but we're walking down to the two things and you have next to the garden next to what is known as the basilica of agony or the Basilica of Tears is there here. And then you have here, this is the Kidron Valley all down here and then Jerusalem. So you would walk here and then to head towards Jerusalem. You'd go through the uh, Kidron Valley. Uh, next picture. Uh, and so this is then our group was situating ourselves. We were in the, uh, of the far left part of the Garden of Gethsemane, just so you know. And we situated ourselves and just had a time of uh, prayer a time of reflecting, sitting in the garden of Gethsemane. Now, that word Gethsemane, if we'll throw out the next slide, the word Gethsemane is two words actually. It's gat or geth, which means press, as in a press. And so, uh, and then shami or shamani. Uh, shamani is oil or uh, olive fat or olive oil. And so it's a press, it's an, it's an olive press. Gethsemane means olive press. Now our press looks like this, next picture. So this is an ancient press that you have. This is how they would then crush the olives to get the oil out of them. And you need something really heavy because the idea is you need to smash that pit. You need to be able to crush the thing really well. So this is a picture of what they did. And oh, by the way, they found several of these presses in that garden of Gethsemane that we just showed you. They found a number of presses in there. And then you would do that and you would get from these olive trees, olive oil, so they named it Gethsemane, olive press, the way the garden would be. So next picture, to give you an idea of some of these trees, this tree in the garden, so you know, is 2,000 years old, that olive tree. So when you look at it, and if you look at it, you go, yeah, it looks kind of odd. It looks kind of weird because the trunk is 2,000 years old, but the branches are new. Because the best way to get the best olives are to take new branches and graft them into the old, reliable trunk, and you'll actually get the best olives. So they grafted them on. So it's a mental picture for the people, a contextual picture when they talk about being taking the new and grafting it into the old, as Paul often talked about the Gentiles being grafted into that which has always been, correct? So it's a picture, but it's stunning how they would do this and they would get these olive oils. Now here's what's interesting. The gospel writers call it the Garden of Gethsemane press, as in there, there is this sense of strain, struggle, crushing, except for the gospel of John. 
John doesn't use the word Gethsemane. He just calls it a garden. You know why? John doesn't want to talk about suffering. John wants to talk about new creation, so he just says garden. And he wants, to think, wants you to think about an other garden because he wants to just talk about creation and new creation. So that, that side note. Um, Matthew 26, 37 to 30, uh, 41. He, that is Jesus, took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, uh, and he, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this what? cup, we talked about cups last week, be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. First, we have to remember they just came from a Passover meal that they shared together, and at this meal, they had how many cups of wine? Four. And now it is long into the night when they're in this garden, and Jesus asks them to sit and pray for an, for an hour? After four cups of wine? Does that help a little bit understand, like, well, maybe they're getting a little tired, Little, little, give me four cups of wine, you can forget it. Sweet, fancy Moses. Now, um, the hours get along, so they, they're doing, it at least gives us a little help, a little something with these sleepy students that, you know, we'll, we're going to circle back to them, but we're going we're gonna to read on, we're going to kind of go through our story, and then we're going to circle back and dig in. So, verse 41. Uh, he went away, Jesus, a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup, to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Uh-huh. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners rise. Now we can read this. I just got to have to highlight this. This word rise, we've highlighted, I have in the past, it's a gyro. Go ahead and say a gyro. It's a resurrection word. So it can mean like get up, but it also means to arouse from the sleep of death. To recall the dead to life. So you, you can read it as him just saying, hey guys, come on, let's get up and go. And you could hear it from, guys, I need you to awake from the death that you have been in. There's something more that we need to pay attention to. Let's go, let us go, here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. 
Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings what? Oh, here he is again. He's, not, he's just never going to call him Lord, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, <laughs> that stings, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Boy, we need those words. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Legion could be somewhere between 3,000, 5,000, depending on how you have it, but you have obviously lots and lots is the number. They're just trying to give a big massive number. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And what's our last line? Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. We just had this talk. They just said, no matter what. And just like that, they're gone. Why, why did Jesus tell his disciples to stay awake and keep watch? Is it so they could see the temple guard marching to them and they could you know, alert to Jesus, hey, 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 here they come, flee under the cover of night and get away? If these students could have stayed awake, could they have helped Jesus avoid being arrested? Is, just, is Jesus saying that if they would just be strong in spirit, then, then he wouldn't be arrested, put on trial, and crucified? Is this a what-if game? What if they were more disciplined? What if they were stronger? What if they were better? Then there could have been another way out. Is, is that what's going on here? Well, one, our geographical context shows us that that's not going to be the case. Jesus would have heard and seen the temple guard marching from the Antonio for Fortress, so our first picture here, uh, Antonio Fortress uh, attached to the temple, seeing whereas this is where the guard, where they would come from when they're assembled, okay, I need you military to go and get Jesus, all you different guards. So this is where it would be. Next picture. To give us an example, Antonio Fortress cir circled here, Garden of Gethsemane. He would, from being in the garden, it's late at night, he would see the torches, he would see all the flames, he would hear them marching with all their swords and equipment, he would hear them coming down, moving across the Kid Kidron Valley. He could watch it and hear it take place. Here they are, circling around, coming to the Garden of Gethsemane. I can hear it. I can see it. So Jesus isn't like, hey, keep watch, because otherwise I won't know what's going on. That's not what's happening. Jesus 
was not caught off guard. Would the outcome outcome be any different for Jesus if the sleepy students would have been stronger and more disciplined? Nope. Because this was never about changing the outcome for Jesus. It was about transforming the hearts of his students. That's what always has been going on here. It can be hard for us to grasp that someone in this situation would not be thinking about self-preservation. But Jesus is not doing that. He knows his purpose. He knows what needs to take place. So this is not about himself. Jesus desires his students to have expanded hearts because he knows it will lead to a richer life. Pay attention. Jesus is not asking his students to be perfect. He is teaching them to be present. Don't try to escape this moment of pain. Be with me in it. That's what he says to them. Stay here with me. Be here with me as we go through this struggle and this excruciating moment. Will you be with me in it? Jesus isn't demanding perfection. He is calling on them to pay attention. Will you see the more that is beyond this moment? Will you be awake to the more? Are you with me? This moves us to the question of why would Judas betray Jesus? Because a sleepy heart a deceived heart or an entitled heart drift towards self-preservation, self-satisfaction, and self-consumption. That's how a big story, a divine story, becomes a small story that places the students at the center with them trying to control the outcome. If only we were strong enough, we could change this story. But the story is never hinged on whether they were strong enough, good enough, smart enough, or fill in the blank with your enoughness. We're going to look at the three students then who are in the garden with Jesus, who have this time. We have Peter, who's already spouted off with his bravado, right? I'll never leave you except I will. And and then we're going to look at James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, real quick. So if you recall a few chapters back, just a few chapters back, James and John's mom approached Jesus like a mom going to a coach or a teacher and saying, "Uh, hey, hey, can my sons be starters? Uh, Can my my sons be uh, the teacher's special helpers? You remember this conversation that uh, they, and so I picture, like, I'm trying to think, are James and John hiding behind their mom going, oh, sweet heavens, I can't believe this is happening right now? Or are they sitting behind their mom going, come on, please say yes. You know, thanks, mom, for going to the teacher for me and pitching in. Oh, I love it. So, when we look at this moment, though, of that conversation where Jesus is, or James and John's mom are kind of pitching to Jesus, we go to this moment because it shines light on what is happening here in the garden at this time. 
Matthew 20, 22 to 20, or 23, um, says this. Jesus answered to that question, hey, can they, can they do this? You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to what? Oh. Yeah, now we get it. Drink the cup that I am to drink. They said to him, yeah, we can do that. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When Jesus is enthroned as king, which is on the cross, he has someone on his left and on his right, correct? Do you remember who they are? Criminals. Well, that's a teacher. Oh. Oh. Jesus' words here now have, having shared the Passover meal that they have together, they are loaded that much more. It carries that much weight being in the garden like all that has just taken place. Yes, you do get to be with me even in these excruciating moments leading up to my enthronement, which, by the way, is my death. And yes, your story will play out like mine, but that does not mean what you think it does. Because what you are asking for is an up and to the right, we get to sit in glory kind of fame for us. That, you know, where they're sitting next to the sword-wielding, military, superpower, King Jesus who has crushed Rome, that's not what's happening here. We have the immense privilege of seeing how it did play out for Peter, James, and John. John, we understand, to have experienced incredible persecution, and then he gets exiled to an island called Patmos, right, where he then pens this letter to the churches that we know in Revelation. And then James, we read about in Acts chapter 12, 1 and 2, and it says this, it was about this time that King Herod, Antipas, arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Yeah, you, you will walk the path that I walk. And we get to read about it later. We see how this goes for them. The lives of Jesus' students are this wild roller coaster of following failing, following, waking up, getting it. Oh, it's about way more than I thought. So we have the privilege of seeing like in the midst of them continuing to miss it or seeing their less than stellarness, it's a teacher for us. We pause, we're going to pause this story of looking at who these students are of Jesus, who keep on just messing this thing up, tripping and stumbling, but then falling. We'll pause that, and now let's turn to the nativity story, if you will, the Christmas story, because this will remind us of who is it 
that the divine says, you may walk in my kingdom. Who gets invited to walk in the kingdom of heaven? Luke, the gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And there were what? Shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. We'll pause. We've heard this read how many times in our life, probably? But in the first century, shepherds were a despised profession. It's a dirty, smelly, low-brow profession. Look down on. The religious leaders, Jesus, would, they would give examples of a shepherd, and he asked them questions. Uh, remember that one time he's like, if you had a hundred sheep, do you know what they would do when he said that? Oh, do not paint a picture of me being a shepherd. We are religious teachers, thank you very much. So this lowbrow profession, oh come on, it's dirty, smelly, yet in this story, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Uh, this is crap propaganda. If you want the world to know the story, a story, if you want this thing to get out there, what you don't do is go, hey, you know what we ought to do is tell it to shepherds. They would look and go, that's the worst idea ever. No one wants to listen to them. They're terrible, stinky, smelly job people. Uh-uh. Unless, of course, that's just the way our divine, heavenly father acts. Luke verses 2, 9, 10 uh, to 15, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring to you, lowly shepherds, good news of great joy that will be for who? Man, all the people. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem, change our tunics on the way, and see this thing, that's my parentheses, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. Shepherds, that's who the divine chose to tell the universe-altering good news to. But they're so plain and lowly. Exactly. The divine chooses what the world considers less than to reveal the eternal more than. Are you with me? The good news doesn't hinge on whether we are good enough. The good news is that the divine loves all of us. And it is this goodness and in love that endures forever. Now then, we get to see the long winding journey of these guys that get referred to as the 12. Jesus knew the whole time he was calling the C students. He was calling the guys who didn't make the varsity, and so they're playing intramural ball. He knew it all along. Yep, great. That's who we're going to have on the team. Jesus knew the temptation in the garden wasn't about sleep. 
The temptation was about thinking that the ego power would be enough. That having the biggest sword, well, that will be enough. That winning is getting rid of those people who are the enemy. Rather than dying to the thinking that people in general are the enemy. Jesus is calling the students to stay awake, to stay with him, even in the face of pain, struggle, arrest, and death. Stay with me. And Jesus is pleading with them not to give in to the illusion that following, about, following him is about their glory rather than a divine glory that transcends the circumstantial, which is where we can get hung up. I love how uh, Franciscan father, Richard Rohr, he speaks into the illusion of this up and to the right expectation this way. It's not true that everything is getting better and better. That fallacy is being taken away from us. But we can return to the pattern of our faith and the pattern of reality that things die and things resurrect and both are good teachers. Christ must be recognized and welcomed in both places, in the dying of things and in the ecstasy and the loveliness of things. The way down always teaches us. We need times where the soul is broken and we need some place we can go and weep and mourn. But, and this is so huge, we must have healthy people there who don't let us sink into that negativity as a way of life. As people of the church, we are called to be agents of transformation who witness and accompany change with the wisdom of the soul. Hooey. That we learn in the failing or it's a lesson. And Christ is here with me. And this hurts and this is difficult. But I also need then the church around me to make sure I don't stay there. I just learn from this. I grow in this and from this. But I don't stay there. But I do need that confrontation with difficulty. Friends, may you come to see how the divine loves, redeems, and calls all people. May you come to see that it's not about your and my enoughness, but always and forever about the divine's goodness, which meets us in our bravado and humbles us, meets us in our brokenness and remakes us, This love that endures forever is not an abstract, precious moments figurine. It's revealed in the church, relentlessly witnessing to the grace and peace of Christ that meets each one of us exactly where we are, as we are, but never leaves us there. If we will wake up, if we will have eyes to see that this moment isn't the end, It's maybe a beginning. That's the invitation 
that we get to see in these students walking with Jesus and experiencing it all. And when they want to try and avoid the pain, Jesus says, come stand next to me, keep watch, keep praying, be in this moment, even though you don't understand it, even though it hurts so much, I trust you will become more if you will stay awake with me. Gracious God, I bless you for inviting us to continually see the more of your love, the more of your patience with us. The more in humility. The more in holding on to you the more of inviting others to sit with us in the discomfort and the hurt, the pain, the struggle. The more that is beyond just this moment. I bless you, God, for having this story that we get to read and what is so often labeled as these students of yours failing we get to see their humanity. We get to learn from the ways in which they tripped and stumbled to teach us, coach us, draw us out of ourselves and to see the more of you. I bless you, God, for that. I pray you will continue to move, nudge, shape, and reshape our hearts to see the big story of you.